It is my joy to come before you once again and to lead you to the pinnacle of worship, which is the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And we therefore will ascend the great mountains of divine revelation as we open up the Word this morning. And today we are going to behold the concept of the fairness of divine grace. And so I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. We will be looking at verses 30 through chapter 20, verse 16 this morning. So why don't you turn there, Matthew 19. But before we look at the text, before I read it, let me give you the context a bit here so that your mind is wrapped around the appropriate concepts. Jesus now is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And despite the anguish that would lay ahead of him, he knew that he had much still to teach his disciples and therefore all who would follow him. The dominant theme of chapter 18, as we have studied, and chapter 19, is life in the kingdom of God. You will remember that the disciples were striving for status. They were striving for rank within the kingdom bickering over who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. But remember, the Lord taught in chapters 18 and 19, first of all, that we enter the kingdom with the humility of a child, depending upon nothing that we can offer, but depending solely upon the Savior, that we live in the kingdom with the humility of an infant. He even said that these are the greatest in the kingdom. He gave strong admonitions as to stumbling blocks that would cause others to sin. He taught much about the purity of the church and very carefully delineated the process for church discipline that needs to occur within a church to lovingly bring people back into fellowship with the Lord and to honor the purity of the church. And knowing that we will all fail one another, he taught much on the concept of forgiveness and the power of reconciliation. In chapter 19, he demonstrated his love and his compassion as he healed the multitudes and he exposed the wretchedness and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, teaching all of us much about marriage and divorce. And then he tenderly blessed the little children, teaching us about their innocence for, as he said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then he taught about the danger of self-deception with the account of the rich, young religious ruler who had great morality, but he did not have Christ. And then he talked about the great barrier that wealth is to salvation and how materialism can many times block the sanctification process in a believer's life and rob them of blessing. And now he comes along and he adds yet another very important lesson pertaining to the fairness of his grace, the fairness in salvation. And now in this parable, we're going to see that there is equality and impartiality in the kingdom. A reality that is very often misunderstood, even in Christendom today, and therefore is often resented. 
Now, with that in mind, let me read the text to you, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first, Jesus says, will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went again. He went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first last. This lesson of fairness and impartiality and equality in the kingdom is one that the Lord knows the disciples need to understand. One that they have still not learned. You will remember in the first verse of chapter 18, they're again bickering over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. In fact, soon after the Lord instructs them in this parable, we're going to see probably next week that Jesus is uh, describing the horrors that, that, that's awaiting him in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 20, suddenly the mother of James and John comes along and puts Jesus on the spot. And in verse 21 asks, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. The text goes on to say how that it caused the other disciples to become indignant. And a couple of weeks later, even in the upper room that we celebrated here this morning, the text tells us that. They were bickering as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. So this was a very important lesson. So the parable before us was a much needed admonishment to the self-centered, self-absorbed disciples. But my friends, I fear again that the sting of the lash falls on all of our backs because we all have a proclivity to see ourselves more highly than we ought. We are all filled with pride at times, and many times we struggle with jealousy. So what is the meaning of the parable? What is the Lord saying? Well, first of all, let's understand the setting. Certainly the disciples understood this, this parable in terms of the illustrations. And the Lord would always use very common 
earthly illustrations to teach spiritual truths. And of course, the the central theme of this parable is the idea of, of fairness, of his grace and so on. And you want to be very careful when you study parables. Parables are never intended to parallel every nuance of Bible doctrine. And you want to be careful that you don't sometimes force meanings that aren't there. That's a very dangerous thing to do. But they understood that vineyards of that day required a lot of work. You would have to dig the terraces on the slopes of of the of the long uh, and rather steep hills. They would uh, erect little walls around these terraces. They would many times have to bring in top salt soil from below so that they could they could plant the uh, the vineyard in the summertime. They would have to cultivate. They would have to prune uh, the, the trees so that they would bear more fruit. And then at harvest time. Obviously, in the fall, they would have to harvest. And so the landowners needed to hire day workers in order to accomplish these things that would occur periodically throughout the year. Now, the day workers of that day are similar to day workers in other parts of the world today. They were the poorest of the poor. In fact, they had to work to live. And if they didn't get paid even that day, they wouldn't have anything to eat. So what happened in that In that period of history, as it does even today, landowners would go to a public place and they would find day workers waiting to be hired for that day. They would gather in a public place desperate to be hired. I remember when I lived in California, uh, I would go in to to teach there at the master's college. And uh, there was a place where I would pull off the interstate and I had a pickup truck and there would be seriously at least 300 uh, Hispanics standing on the corner wanting to be hired. And if the light wasn't green and I had to stop, they would swarm my truck because they would think that I was a contractor or something. And I'd, I'd, I'd have to go, no, no, no. And then they'd back off and they would be all sad. So I know very well what that feeling is like with day workers. Well, in chapter 20 and verse one, we see that the landowner goes out early in the morning to hire some day workers. And this probably would have been about five o'clock in, in the morning because their work day started at 6 a.m. And in verse two, it tells us that he agrees to pay this first group one denarius for the day's work. By the way, that was reasonably good pay. That's what a Roman soldier would get paid. So that, that was that was really good pay. And in verse three, he comes back at the third hour. So he comes back at about nine a.m. And he sees others standing there and he agrees to pay them. And he says, you know, I'll pay you whatever is right. And they trusted him. And uh, they never anticipated that they would get a full day's wage. But we see that they did. And in verse four, he comes back at the sixth and the ninth hour. He comes back at twelve o'clock and even at three o'clock. And he does the same thing. Verse six, then he comes back at the eleventh hour at five o'clock. Now, the workday is over at six. And there's still some guys standing around there. And he finds uh, he finds them and sees that they need work and he hires them. And then evening comes. And in verse eight, he says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. By the way, again, this was crucial for their their survival. In fact, in the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, we read that you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Now, it is at this point that the parable begins to reveal some profound and, frankly, contested spiritual truths. 
And I've divided it for you into three very simple sections. First, we will see God's measure of grace. Secondly, we will compare that to man's measure of grace. And finally, we will see God's rebuke for selfish pride. First of all, God's measure of grace. The principle is stated in verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then the principle is demonstrated in verses eight and nine, where he talks about call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius, even though they worked one hour. Now, folks, you must understand this. The vineyard represents the kingdom of heaven, those that are united to God through faith in Christ Jesus. The landowner is God, the father. The foreman is the Lord Jesus Christ. The laborers are those who believe in Christ. And the day's labor in the vineyard symbolizes the life of a believer as we endeavor to toil in faithful service for the master for the wages that the master has promised to pay. And the denarius symbolizes eternal life in the glories of heaven. So what Jesus is saying is that every person, now catch this, every person who places their faith in Christ receives the same eternal life. It makes no difference if you were saved early in life and you served faithfully all of your life, you're going to receive the same salvation as a person who came to Christ on their deathbed. In fact, if you think about it, the thief on the cross will enjoy the same indescribable glories in heaven as the Apostle Paul. He will have the same glorified body. He will have the same inheritance. You see, all of us are equally joint heirs with Jesus. We will all have equal access to God. All will be able to fellowship with him. Folks, there are no second class citizens in heaven. There are no cheap seats. There, there's no rear of the bus for certain Christians. If there were, many of us would be there, right? Well, obviously, this was hard for the disciples to swallow, because remember, they're all jockeying for a position. Beloved, please understand, theologically, we are saved totally by grace through no merit of our own. The Holy Spirit breathes life into a spiritually dead corpse. We have been justified through the righteousness of Christ. We are sanctified by the blood of Christ, not our own. We will be glorified someday by the resurrection power of God, not our own power. Every sinner receives the same portion of grace when he is saved. No one can say, well, I, I was not as bad as so-and-so, and so, and so I, I deserve more. Wrong. I mean, folks, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And excuse me, but dead is dead. All right. Dead is dead. Therefore, there is absolutely no basis for any special treatment. None of us deserve heaven. In fact, the chasm between our sin and God's holiness is, is infinite. Even our righteousness is like what? It's like filthy rags. Now, please understand, this is not referring to the rewards that a believer has in heaven, that, that uh, th this is referring only to salvation. You remember, there are rewards that we will have in heaven at the Bema seat, which is called the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema is the elevated platform like you would see the, in the Olympics. 
We read about that in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, where the Spirit of God admonishes us through the Apostle Paul to live godly lives because there it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's that Bema seat. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So although our sins were judged on the cross, what we do in our Christian life out of love for Christ is being divinely measured. It, it will be tested by the refiner's fire at that particular judgment for believers. And then we will be rewarded accordingly. That's in 1 Corinthians 3.13. We read there that each one's work, referring to believers, will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So the believer's rewards are, are individual. And these rewards will determine the nature of our service throughout eternity. And we will receive our reward at his second coming. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. But here in this parable, the landowner... The parable of the landowner, Jesus is referring to the overall glories of heaven that are common to all saints. All believers receive the same inheritance. We all inherit the same kingdom, regardless of the length or even the nature of our service. We all receive the same kingdom, whether we're mature or immature, whether we're faithful or immature and, and lazy whether we died a martyr's death or we wasted our spiritual opportunity all through our lives, we're all going to get the same kingdom. However, those who have wasted opportunity and have lived, shall we say, carnal lives will forfeit blessing. They certainly will experience that in this life and they will forfeit reward in the next. But all who have been reconciled to God through Christ have been declared righteous and will inherit the same kingdom. That's God's measure of grace, number one. Number two, we have to compare this with man's measure of grace. Now, think about it. Because man's measure of himself, of his goodness, is hopelessly biased in his favor. His measure of grace is also going to be equally warped. You see, it is our nature to think that we deserve far more than what we do. So, verses 10 and following, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. Don't you know they were standing in line, shaking their heads, saying, what? What did, what did they pay him? You know, that's how it works. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. Now again, certainly this was the attitude of the disciples. And friends, the all-day workers in this parable represents the apostles. Each one of them vying for special consideration based upon their measure of what they thought they deserved. But they received the wage that was promised. And here's the point. Instead of rejoicing at the good fortune of their co-workers, they're jealous of them. 
And they protest. No fair. We deserve more. Beloved, we need to be thankful that we don't get what we deserve. Because we don't deserve anything but condemnation. That's why we rejoice in grace. Now, some people will say, oh, what an offensive, what an offensive thought. I mean, this, this preacher is a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that has no idea about the importance of self-esteem in a man. and understand, He just doesn't understand the goodness of man. Well, folks, as I read the Scriptures, I see a holy God and I see a sinful man. And as we were talking about earlier, as we partook of communion, that's why the Lord Jesus had to come and to pay the penalty. To be the satisfaction of divine wrath. We could not pay it. Well, such are the words of a fool. You see, only a fool has no comprehension of the holiness of God and therefore has no comprehension of his own sin. And friends, again, trying to grasp the transcendent otherness, the holiness of God, would be like trying to... Well, it would even be greater than trying to describe a star on the most distant galaxy and explain what is there and its makeup. Because, again, there is an infinite chasm between our biased perception of who we are and the infinite holiness of God. And yet, as we see in this parable, even even for believers, many times we have a tragic overestimation of our self-worth. And many times this causes us to question God, to question his fairness. Hey, no fair. We, we worked hard all day in the scorching heat here. And you say, well, no, I'm glad, you know, sorry, Pastor, I'm not that way. Oh, really? Well, try this on for size. Have you ever complained? Have you ever been discontent with your lot in life? And suddenly within your heart, you're saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. I deserve something better than what I'm getting. Or have you ever been jealous or envious of perhaps somebody else in the church? Thinking, you know, I deserve that and you don't. Or have you ever been filled with selfish ambition, demanding your own way? God, if you don't give me what I want, I'm just going to go out and take it. Or have you been unforgiving and bitter? And you're saying, you know what? I, I, I deserve a little justice here. So I am going to take the sword of divine justice out of the Avenger's hand and I'm going to take it into my own hand. Or have you ever resented the fact that God saves certain people? Have you been like the day workers that should have rejoiced at the other workers' good fortune? I knew of a situation where this lady's father came to Christ on his deathbed. And I'll never forget what she said in anger. She said, you know, I don't want to go to heaven if he's there. She hated him so. Remember, Jonah was the same way with the Ninevites. He did not want those people to come to a place of faith and a merciful God. But, beloved, if the angels in heaven rejoice at a sinner that repents, shouldn't we? Of course we should. 
You know, many people resent, for example, the doctrine of sovereign election that is so clear all through Scripture. And people will say, oh, it's just unfair for for God to choose some and to not choose others. And yet the Lord anticipated this, and that's why we have many texts of Scripture, especially Romans chapter nine, that is dedicated to that to that very attitude where somebody thinks that God is unfair and the way he dispenses his grace. There's where you will recall that that he says, and this is a paraphrase, you know, are, are you going to find fault? Are you are you going to try to answer me? God says, will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me this way? The point is simply in that passage that there is a, an infinite chasm between our understanding of God's sovereignty and the reality of, of what he does. We, we can't understand that. And that's why he uses the analogy of a clay pot having somehow the gall and the ability, which is ludicrous, to be able to say to the potter, hey, I don't like the way you made me. That's how silly it is for us to even question a sovereign God and to question the fairness of anything that he does. Let me digress for a moment. You know, I've noticed something very sad that is occurring in evangelical Christianity today. Many people come to Christ seeing him as their blesser before they see him as their savior. They come to him solely for what they're going to receive, not because they really love him and they're captured by his glory and his holiness. Here's how it goes. If I can give you a progression, people have a natural sense of self-love and we tend to be obsessed with our happiness far more than the glory of God. And because of that, we reinvent a God of our own liking. A God that's going to kind of wink at sin and one that is going to just kind of blubber over his creation. One that just loves us so much he's going to do all of these things for us. And so we begin to think to ourselves, my goodness, if God is making over me like he is, you know what? I think I'm going to love him in return. I'm going to I'm going to love him because after all, he's loving me. So I didn't know I was so great. And so what I'll do now is I'll just kind of wait for all of these blessings that he wants to give me to come pouring in. And then driven by self-conceit, many people find themselves rejoicing in their in their newfound treasure of divine blessing. And they begin to kind of strut around proud at how much God loves them. And they become smug with how God has exalted them to this place where he's going to give them all of these wonderful things. That becomes the preoccupation of their mind. And then, because they perceive that all of the benefits of salvation are for their exaltation rather than Christ's, their imaginations become filled with all that they have discovered, all that they have attained. Because after all, they have accepted Jesus. It's not that he has bestowed his grace upon them. And then you find many times believers, maybe some of them are, certainly some of them could be, many of them are not. But you find them babbling about all the special way God blesses and, and they're always speaking privately to God and God to them. 
you know, God told me this and God told me that. And I said, but God, what about and then God told me this and on and on it goes. Talking about all of these private conversations with God. Nothing more than illusions in their mind that fortify their perception of their special status. And since it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, as Scripture tells us, their speech is always about their special status before God, betraying their obsession with self-love. They're always getting prophecies Little special miracles, little private miracles, and you will hear about their experiences all the time. They're always receiving some word of knowledge. Again, all an illusion. It's always fascinating to me, by the way, the, these prophecies that come to people. They're all about some kind of special favor that's going to be granted to them. It's never a prophecy where they would say, yeah, God spoke to me last night. And, 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 and exposed my sin and drove me to my knees. Well, you don't hear that. Seldom with these people will you hear them exalt the glories of Christ. Seldom will they contemplate the attributes of God. They're not captured by that. They're, they're not amazed at His Word. They're not awestruck with the precision of doctrine that glorifies God. There's no longing for the Word because Christianity is all about me. Me, me. And because of their infatuation with self, they tend to jettison Bible doctrine. And their worship and their theology become self-centered, not God-centered. And consequently, these deceptions, these illusions, these things in their imagination banish them to a fool's paradise. And they build a castle in the air. But folks, for the true saint, for somebody that, that, that truly comes to Christ, you don't come to Christ, first of all, thinking of all the goodies you're going to get. You come because you're overwhelmed with His holiness. You're overwhelmed by His, by His glory. And you love Him because of who He is. Not because of somehow you think that you're so great that he is loving you this much. Well, if he's going to do that for me, I guess, you know, if he's going to make over me, I'll just make over him, too. That's the subtle danger of it all. For the true saint, the foundation of salvation is in the glorious perfections of a God that is holy, a God that is totally other. And a true saint discovers first the majesty and the excellency of. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they contemplate those things in their heart. He is solely the object of their love. He becomes the, the, the lyrics of their song. For the true saint they are captured again by the precision of his word. There's no need for imaginary revelations. There's no need for, for this endless obsession with personal experiences. The voice of Christ is enough, the voice that is found in Scripture. And the true saint will speak much of Christ. For those that truly love the Lord, their delight is going to be first in the beauty of His holiness, as the psalmist says. Not in their inheritance. That's a secondary thing. Yeah, we rejoice in that, but that's not where you begin. That's where you end. 
We love God for the staggering perfection of who he is, not for the benefits that we're going to receive. Christ's love for us is glorious, but it's a secondary consideration. You know, I thought about this. Actually, it was on the plane last night coming back from California. And I was just uh, immersed in meditating on some passages of Scripture and talking with the Lord. One of the things that occurred to me, you know, I again, and if you can pardon a, a personal illustration, I try not to do much of this, but I think it fits here. You know, I had time this last week to be way up on the tops of, of mountains. The, the peaks were about 10,000 feet high where we were at with snow on them. We wouldn't go that high because the cattle weren't that high. But many times we were at eight, eighty-five hundred 8,500 feet. And there would be times where I would be alone and I'd be, you know, sitting upon my my massive steed with all that power between my legs and you, you just, you know, feel them catching their breath. And I, I could look out and I could see... The, the, the glories of God's creation. I could look out and I could see various wildlife and, and beautiful plant life all over the place. And, and, and as I stand there, I, I, I would find myself once again amazed at the glory of God. But you know what? A carnal person or even a non-believer can do that. But when you add to that, the glories of understanding precisely who God is, not because of his general revelation in creation, but because of his special revelation in the word. Now, because of this, because God has spoken truth into my heart, I can cry out as I stand on that mountaintop on my horse and I can look out and I can say, Abba, Father, I, I, I know the Father. I, I know who God is. I know this plan of redemption. I know why I'm here. I, and, and, you know, as I'm caught up in the glories of God and the holiness of God, and I see myself once again as a wretched sinner that has been saved solely because of his grace. I don't say at that point, I can't wait for him to give me something else. That's not the basis of my love. But rather... At times like that, and you've all had them, shall we say a mountaintop experience? We've all had them. You know, at those times, we truly worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yeah, the spirit soars as you see the glory of God, especially when you can look out and see what I could see so often. But that subjective experience of worship must be regulated by biblical, precise, doctrinal truth. That's what the Father seeks, those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in the context of that, in the context of our understanding, we love Him for who He is, first and foremost, not for what He's going to give us. That's secondary. That's almost forgotten. We long to see Him face to face. Our joy is in Him and Him alone. And our soul's affections are caught up in His glory. Not in our needs, not in our benefits. We don't stand at that time in our lives and say, oh, I wonder what he's going to give me next. But rather we say, as with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Child of God, may I remind you again, guard yourself against Self-worship, against self-love, against these imaginary revelations that feed those deceptions. Make the preoccupation of your heart and your soul 
to be caught up in his glory. Solidea Gloria. We give God the glory in him alone. And then we stay lost in the wonder of his holiness. And as we try to grasp in our finite minds the infinite otherness of God, then in light of that, we see our sin. And again, we can stand amazed in, the, in his presence because of his grace. And then it puts in perspective all of the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. And it's out of these glorious concepts, out of the wellspring of this kind of worship, that we then secondarily rejoice in the benefits that are ours. So we love God first for who he is, not for what we're going to get. Well, back to the text. We contrast God's versus man's measure of grace. And then we see God's rebuke for the selfish pride. Look at verse 13. But he answered and said to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first last. In other words, he's saying, don't resent me for my generosity. For the generosity of my grace, don't be filled with pride and impose your self-centered measure of justice upon me. I mean, folks, that's a blasphemous thought. It reminds me of the Jews that were in Babylonian captivity because of their wickedness. And it's interesting, as you read the Old Testament, you'll find that they were accusing God of treating them unfairly. And in Ezekiel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 2, we see how that they would, they would, in essence, shaking their fist at God and questioning his justice. And they would quote this proverb, and I'll give it to you out of Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 2. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. And it goes on, and we read how the Lord gets enough of it. And so the Lord replies, as I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. And then later on in verses 25 and 29, he says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O Israel, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? Beloved, don't question the fairness and the goodness of God. We've all got to guard ourselves against questioning his justice in our life. Because pride will inevitably lead to envy, which will lead to jealousy, which will lead to strife. I rejoice when someone else comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, but very often I have found people who don't for one reason or another, or when somebody else receives praise that you think you should have received, when someone is honored more than you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, and I quote, Oh, how some of God's greatest servants have been shriveled up when they begin to swell out with pride and vanity. God blessed them as long as they were feeble and weak and leaned upon his strength. But when they were strong and relied on themselves, there came a dreadful failure. There is one thing which is certain. If you are among the first, you will reckon yourself to be among the last. He that is best thinks himself worst. Well, 
As we wrap this up this morning, we find various ways of applying this parable to our lives because this parable reveals some remarkable spiritual truths about God and about us as his people, as believers. First of all, think about this for a minute as as we think about what comes out of this parable with respect to us. First of all, we can see, number one, that we are prone to be self-centered. Even the disciples, I mean, they were prone to that. We tend to be territorial. We resent anyone, especially if there's somebody new in the church, that is somehow used in a sphere of surface, a sphere of service where you think you need to be, where they begin to be exalted, perhaps, in some way. In fact, Paul talked about this in Romans 12, in verse 3. He's talking about the stewardship of spiritual gifts. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith, referring to spiritual gifts that are to be used within the body. Folks, we, we, don't, we don't suffer with this problem of poor self-esteem within the church, within the body of Christ. You never hear the Lord coming along and saying, you know what, you really need to think about yourself much more highly than you ought. Now, we already, we we're already real good at that. But we also find in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before instruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And all too often, I fear that we're like the all-day workers, we, we are resentful of others. We're like the elder brother of the prodigal son. Remember when, the, when his brother came back? He resented his son. He was offended by his father's welcome. And beloved, we must always rejoice with those who rejoice. The second thing we see about ourselves as we look at this parable is that we are prone to impose our justice upon God rather than submitting to that which we do not understand. Folks, don't ever question the mind of God. Don't ever question Him. I can think of no greater blasphemy. Remember Job? As he suffered and he didn't understand it, he gradually became more and more convinced that he was being treated unfairly. <laughs> he began to complain and challenge. Boy, wouldn't we all in a situation like that? Challenging God's wisdom, challenging God's justice, demanding an audience before God. You will recall as you read Job that God finally silences Job by intimidating him with his glory for a number of chapters. And then he challenges Job to respond to his infinite uh, wisdom out of Job's infinite ignorance. And he says, I will question and you answer me. And he goes through all of these things. And finally, in chapter 42 and verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. And he went on to say, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. Beloved, his ways are not our ways. The secret things belong to the Lord. There is not one single Bible doctrine that we can understand. Not one single one. We understand only enough to understand what the scriptures tell us. I have no earthly idea how God could speak something into existence. 
and on and on it goes. Well, we also see in this, this parable some important spiritual truths about God. Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, we see that he is gracious without partiality. And again, aren't you glad we don't get what we deserve? Oh, I am. Indeed, there is no partiality with God, Paul said in Romans 2.11. You see, like the landowner, God's grace has nothing to do with what we deserve. Nor does it have any relationship to the amount of work that we do. He always gives lavishly far more than we deserve. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24, we read that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he does, for, for who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and without partiality. And this is why Paul would later on rejoice, referring to himself as the chief of sinners and the least of all the apostles. Not worthy to be an apostle. Secondly, we see that God is the one who seeks to save those who are willing. Those workers that came out, those were the ones that were hired. And we know that God is ever vigilant to seek and to save the lost, for he is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. Indeed, Jesus promised that the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Thirdly, God is compassionate to those who recognize their need. Again, what tender mercy he demonstrates to those who are broken of spirit, who are contrite of heart, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, who, like a beggar, humbly cry out for mercy and for grace. And fourthly, we see that God will always give what he has promised. The reservoir of his grace will never run dry, dear friends. His atoning work on the cross is infinitely sufficient to pay for our sins, to pay the ransom for all who believe. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 3.8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Even the psalmist said in Psalm 17.15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. No, folks, he's promised that he's gone away to prepare a home for us. You know what? He's going to deliver on that promise. He has promised that someday we're going to behold his very face. We're going to behold the glory of Christ. He has promised that our body is going to be transformed. There's going to be a glorious metamorphosis that we can't even imagine. And what he's promised, he is going to pay. None of that is deserved. He has promised an inconceivable inheritance. In fact, in Colossians 1.12, it says that we are to be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You remember in the original language is the idea that we all have a portion of the lot. There is a place in heaven with our name on it. There are certain things that he has reserved for us. As we are joint heirs with Jesus, Hebrews 10 and verse 34 indicates that we will have an enduring possession for ourselves in heaven. Folks, we're going to inherit the kingdom. We're going to rule with him and reign with him even during the millennial kingdom at his second coming until the eternal state begins. This is why Paul rejoiced, saying, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, 
Beloved, may I challenge you all to guard your hearts against self-love, against self-centered pride. Because even, even as our sin has made us all equally guilty before a holy God, so too His grace has made us equally reconciled to Him through Christ Jesus. So let's be content with our lot in life. Let's rejoice with others who may have more than we have. Because again, we have more than we deserve. And may we never attempt to put the infinite purposes of a holy and a sovereign and a gracious God in some kind of a box of our own making, be it theological or otherwise. Because He is God and we are not. And let's together rejoice in every expression of His undeserved mercy and grace in our life and in the lives of all of the saints. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You that by the power of Your Spirit You have communicated to us these wonderful concepts that speak to Your impartiality through the fairness of Your grace. And Lord, as we close this morning, once again, as we just rejoice in all that You have given us, we do so, first of all, because we are absolutely overwhelmed at who You are. We love You because of who You are. And only secondarily because of what you've done for us, even though that is enough for us to sing praises forevermore. But Lord, we worship you, first of all, in the beauty of your holiness. We worship you because you alone deserve worship. You alone deserve the glory. And Lord, I pray if there be a person within the sound of my voice. That hears these words and they're hollow to them, perhaps even boring I pray, Lord, that that person will recognize the wretchedness of their condition, that they stand condemned before a holy God. And, oh, Lord, how I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will confess their sin and acknowledge you as their only savior and commit themselves to your lordship, that they, too, may inherit the blessings that are available through your grace. For again, it's in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray with great joy and thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615. 746-0113.